Good evening, everybody. Welcome to Class 6 on the Lays of Balerion. We are, uh, well, I was going to say we are moving our way through, but of course you will notice last time we didn't move our way through uh, the <laughs> actual poem so very quickly. Um, but um, that's okay. That's okay. Um, uh, we're we're gonna we're gonna totally catch up tonight. Um, quick announcements first. I've mentioned our fall classes. We're starting to get to, we've only got about ten more days left before the fall semester starts. Uh, so again, that's our Anglo-Saxon class with uh, with Michael Drought, Tolkien's Wars in Middle Earth with John Garth, and. Um, uh, and the uh, uh, and the third one, oh, the Star Wars class, of course, the one I've been announcing for longest. Uh, Amy Sturgis' Star Wars class, uh, really great slate of classes this term, so I definitely want to make sure that you uh, look into those. Um, also, remember that this week is the beginning of season one of the Silmarillion film project, so we're going to start actually mapping out our first season of theoretical episodes uh, starting on Friday, so that's this Friday morning at 10 a.m. Eastern Time. Uh, and the episode, this is a big episode because we're going to be going actually through all 13 episodes of season one and doing a, doing a plot outline uh, for the entire season. So uh, it's, it's definitely a big episode for season one here at the beginning. Um, and I will also, as, uh, as I have been of late, I will be able to again this week uh, do my stream from the Lord of the Rings online uh, as I take my, uh, my little Hobbit character uh, to Weathertop and the Lonelands uh, this week. So uh, that, should be, that should be a lot of fun. Um, and finally, I wanted to make another uh, exciting announcement. Not that those weren't exciting announcements, but I want to make an even more exciting announcement. Um, we have another live event that is a live, real-world, actually get-together-in-person event, like Mythmoot, except um, it's going to be a little bit smaller and therefore in some ways easy to attend. This is, uh, uh, this is Midmoot, or to give it its properest name... The Mythgard Mid-Atlantic Speculative Fiction Symposium. I love the full name of uh, of uh, the uh, Mythgard Mid-Atlantic Speculative Fiction Symposium. Uh, this is going to be happening at the University of Maryland on Saturday, October third. Um, it's a one-day conference, so it's just you know it'll start uh, start mid-morning and go until dinner time. Um, there's gonna be it's gonna be a really great cool event. I'm gonna be there. Um, more importantly, our guest of honor uh, at Midmoot, uh, as we still uh, call it um, uh, uh, affectionately, uh, is going to be Ver uh, Dr. Verlin Flieger, who is going to be talking about the new Kullervo book, which is, uh, uh, which is just being released very soon. Um, so if you want to talk, uh, if you want to hear uh, Dr. Flieger talk about uh, you know, her experience with editing uh, the latest Tolkien book to hit the shelves, um, and if you want to, and, and you're going to be able to follow up and ask uh, ask uh, questions yourself, Dr. Flieger is just uh, a wonderful, wonderful person, and uh, a really, you know, just one of the one of the top Tolkien scholars in the world. A really great, um, really great person to be able to to uh, um, to uh, to hear from. Um, also, going to be attending. Who's actually going to be interviewing her at the conference is going to be Carl Hostetter, the uh, one of the greatest living scholars of uh, of of Quenya of, of Tolkien's languages. Um, so Carl is is going to be there. He's going to be interviewing her. So it should be a really great venue to be able, you know, a great chance to to meet lots of Tolkien scholars. Um, it's 
as I say, it's only one day long. It's really inexpensive. The registration fee is only ten dollars. Um, so I, I think it's uh, this is a really great opportunity. So to find this, go to the MythGuard.org, the events tab, and the first thing on the events tab here, and you can find the full information, the registration link. Um, and this should be uh, this should be this should be great fun. I am I am uh, really really looking forward to that. Um, Sarah King is asking, how do you register for the film film workshop? Um, that is a good question. I believe it should be on somefilm.mythgard.org uh, um, is where that should be. Uh, yeah, yeah. I don't have that one queued up here, but uh, but yes, that should be where the new the new Sum film is. Also, if you watch the social media outlets for Mythgard or Signum or mine, the Tolkien Professor ones, I just posted one on my Twitter feed, for instance, yesterday. Um, the link those they, they should also be findable there too. All right. So I hope some of you will be. I, I hope to get a chance to meet some of you at uh, uh, this uh, this event that we're doing here. And uh, uh, this is. I'm one of the other reasons that I'm really excited about this event. I really hope that this is a kind of thing that we're able to do in other regions too. Um, so, you know, we're, I'm I'm looking forward to sort of seeing how that goes in that way. Um, good. Kate uh, Neville says the link is on Facebook. Okay. Good. Excellent. Um, all right, let's get back to the poem because we're still at the beginning of Canto 1 and we were supposed to be at the end of Canto 4, so we still have quite some distance yet to travel here this evening. Um, so let's, uh, let's uh, go ahead. Um, the title, the overall title that I gave to today's class is Release from Bondage, and the main reason I did that is, of course, that's what sort of it's the subtitle of the poem, right? That's sort of what, Le- Le- what, what uh, Le- Lathian means. And um, I love that name uh, release from bondage as a title, an overarching title of the story of Baron and Luthien Um, I find that to be one of the most uh, sort of intriguing and complex titles that Tolkien gave anything that he wrote I love thinking about that concept, the concept of release from bondage, evocative Kate is exactly the word for it Um, uh, I love thinking about release from bondage and all of the various ways in which that idea is applicable to the poem. It's going to come up at many points in tonight's class, so I just want to... The main reason I put that as the title is just to kind of invite us to be continuing to come back to that idea um, as we as we go through, as we as we look at this, because we are going to be looking at a pretty big uh, span of the poem tonight, at least. That's the goal. Uh, so... Remember last time in Canto Two, where we were, um, we were looking at the. De- we started with the description of King Morgoth and the interesting sort of parallel how we have uh, King Thingol at the beginning and the, the the very impressive description of him sounding extremely regal and very wealthy and very powerful, um, and uh, and sort of his reach in his in his forest kingdom, and then we have King Morgoth, right? And how it emphasized the King Morgoth. Um, uh, in this and and his uh, you know the, his his profundity right remember those lines which described him as being older and stronger than the stones and more fierce and dire than the fires of the earth it's pretty big stuff right that whereas uh, Thingol was in the midst of life you know he was in the midst of the forest and the the beasts and everything and his hand was over them but he you know um, we have this isolation and desolation that's described around Morgoth so it's 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 a really fascinating and 
pretty hard to avoid the idea that it's a very deliberate counterpart, a uh, counterpoint, rather, between those two. Now, I want to continue after that, because this is... All of this, the beginning of Canto Two here, is given to us in large part because um, this is the new context for Baron, right? Um, so let's look at uh, this uh, first uh, paragraph, sort of stanza, line grouping here. Um, continues, uh, sort of completes that initial description, that that, that initial uh, uh, portrait of King Morgoth. Unconquerable spears of steel were at his nod. No ruth did feel the legions of his marshaled hate, on whom did wolf and raven wait. And black the ravens sat and cried upon their banners black, and wide was heard their hideous chanting dread above the reek and trampled dead. With fire and sword his ruin red, on all that would not bow the head like lightning fell. The northern land lay groaning neath his ghastly hand. Um, notice how again we have that image of the land lying under his hand. Right, the woodland was described as being on, uh, under the hand of, of of Thingol in stanza one, but now we have the northern land is groaning neath his ghastly hand. Right, a little bit different. Um, uh, with fire and sword, his ruin red on all that would not bow the head like lightning fell. Um, this emphasis on the. Uh, uh, the 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 absolute force with which he rules, right? The the the, the thoroughness of his tyranny. Um, also, there's not any sense of borders, right? Thingol's realm, though strong, is very clearly bounded, right? We've got Doriath and the borders of Doriath, in which uh, you know we 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 hear evidence uh, already of the you know of Melian of the girdle of Melian, that is of the you know, sort of the madness that afflicts people who try to get in and. And all that stuff. Um, Morgoth's realm has no boundaries. It's uh, a much more uh, sort of imperial place, right? Uh, yeah, Kate says uh, there are still hints of alliteration, as if Tolkien just can't help himself. Um, yes, it's true. Um, we do, uh, uh, you know, on whom did wolf and raven wait and black the raven sat and cried upon their banners black and wide. You hear all those B's and W's in there, right? Um, yeah, absolutely. Um, uh, it's just. Tolkien was so sensitive to the sound of words, and um, it's one of the things that I love. It's one of the things I find so rewarding about reading Tolkien's poetry carefully, is that there's there's very little that is sort of wasted in it. You know, he doesn't usually... St- um, it's not that it's all perfect or that it all works perfect, but it has... It all has a kind of force. He never just tosses stuff out there. Um, and uh, you can hear the way in which he is sort of appealing to the various kinds of, of, of sort of music and sound effects that you can make uh, through words, both through rhyme and through rhythmic changes and through, through alliteration and assonance. Um, it's, uh, I just, I just, that's why I just love reading his poetry. But now... We continue on, and this is the really important transition. And that here is the really fascinating thing. Of course, we saw this to some extent already modeled in the last stanza, right, or the last canto. In Canto One, we have Thingol the Mighty King, right, and how awesome he is. But then we have this sort of transition. But greatest of all the things in his realm was 
his daughter, Melala, I mean Luthien, right? Um, and then so we have Yo Luthien. She's she. So the focal point is sort of on the king, but then it shifts to Luthien theoretically. Um, here we have the same thing, right? King Morgoth and how awful he is and how powerful he is, but still there lived in hiding cold, undaunted, Barahir the bold, of land bereaved, of lordship shorn, who once a prince of men was born, and now an outlaw lurked and lay in the hard heath and woodland grey, and with him clung of faithful men but Baron, his son, and other ten. Yeah, so Nancy, there is a third king, right? Well, he once was a king, and now he's an outlaw, right? Um, so, again, just as we had Thingol, but, actually, it's Luthien, right? Here we have Morgoth, but Barahir, right? Um, and I would, uh, you know, say, see the emphasis on his on his boldness, right? There's already, you know, the undaunted is one of the first adjectives that's, you know, it's the first adjective that's used of him, right? We get it before we get his name. Um, undaunted and bold are the two adjectives that sort of frame Barahir's name when he's introduced, right? Uh, we get the the boldness, the stubbornness of him, even though he's lost his realm, right? He he was a prince of... He was born a prince of men. He has no realm anymore. He only now has his son, Baron, and ten other men. But yet, he still defies the king who, clearly, given the fact that we're told that he was born a prince of men, uh, the, 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 the king, Morgoth, who is plainly in the in the role of usurper here to Barahir, in Barahir's kingdom. Um, nevertheless, he, he, he continues to defy him and to live as an outlaw. And this is where I would lay particular stress on the King Morgoth thing, right? It might be easy for, you know, we're used to thinking about Morgoth. Morgoth very familiar to us, right? So it's, uh, it's kind of tempting, I think, for Silmarillion readers to just kind of skip over the king business, right? Yeah, yeah, Morgoth, okay. I know who you're talking about, right? No, no, no. This is King Morgoth, and I think that's important, because in the Silmarillion, the published Silmarillion, Baron and Barahir, um, you know, they live as, like, refugees. They live, but they're not exactly outlaws. To say they're outlaws um, suggests that there's a, a, a sort of a, a king who's ruling over them, right? And whose laws they are defying, rather than just an enemy from which they are fleeing. Um, or, you know, the, 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 the encroaching enemy, which, you know, so they're sort of guerrilla resistance leaders uh, in, uh, you know, of their small band. But it's not exactly like a, a full-blown Robin Hood situation in the published Silmarillion, because there's no king. It's just we're going to use guerrilla tactics to hide out from and resist the invading, the overwhelmingly powerful invading enemy force, right? Um, so the, 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 the element of outlawry, I think, is particularly interesting uh, uh, in the Lay of Lathian and, and gives a particular... Uh, a particular flavor, if that's the way of saying it, to Barahir and Baron's heroism. Um, and it's a flavor that, again, I don't think is there in the same way in the Silmarillion. Baron and Barahir's holding out in, uh, uh, in Dorthonian in the Silmarillion seems to me, feels to me more like Hurin saying, day shall come again, as he stands in the fens of Serech, right? That is, the stubborn, self-sacrificing, 
standing against an impossibly superior foe until the night falls, right? That seems to be what Baron and Bari here are doing in Tarnufuin. Um, that's... It's not that it's totally different, it's not that it has nothing in common, but as I say, it's a different flavor from there is a king who rules this land, an evil king, an evil usurping king who rules this land, and we are going to live a life of outlaws uh, within this realm that once was our own, and we are going to uh, to just sort of resist and defy his law. Um, yeah, yeah, that's... Um, yeah, Kate Neville says it, it contrasts to the outlawry of Turin with his band of not-so-merry uh, men and elves, absolutely. Yeah, Turin and his... What would be the opposite of merry men? Uh, Turin and his grin-faced men? Uh, <laughs> I'm not quite sure. Um, but um, but anyway, that's... I, yeah, yeah. I mean, uh, Kate, that is a really interesting um, point of contrast, I agree. Um, <laughs> Sarah King, I love that. Turin and his morbid men. <laughs> it's, it's like the, the denotation is not quite right, but I love the I, I love the the uh, the word there. Gloomy, gloomy. Okay, I can do with I I can go gloomy. I feel like it has to be a, a bisyllabic word, right? Grim doesn't work. Dour I like conceptually, Jim, but I can't. What the one syllable doesn't roll off the tongue uh, quite so much. Um, uh, sober, Michael. Yeah, yeah. Though that you know. With the uh, the 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 alcohol, uh, you know, it's like, it makes it just sound like they're teetotalers, right? Which uh, is uh, is not necessarily uh, is not necessarily the thing. Um, yeah, I'm gonna, <laughs> I still like morbid Sarah. It still it doesn't quite fit, but it's still my favorite. Anyway, okay, 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 um, okay. So as you say, it's it's an outlaw thing. It's the particular kind of heroism that we see Baron and his father Bara here uh, involved in. Now let's look at Gorlim. The story of Gorlim, this of course, as Christopher points out, and we'll come back to this in a little bit, is the origin of the Gorlim story. It, 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 it bursts into being here in the A manuscript of, uh, of the Lay of Lathian. Um, those who remember from the Book of Lost Tales, we did not get any history. When Baron showed up uh, in Doriath, or Artenor as it was at the time, um, and first saw Luthien, or that is Tenuviel as she was at the time, and they did their, you know, dancing and looking out at her from the bushes and chasing after her and Tenuviel, Tenuviel. You know, that whole overall sequence happened. But where Baron was coming from and why he was there, he had been on a long journey. Um, but remember, he was an elf back in the tale of Tenuvio. He wasn't a man. Um, and he, he didn't have this sort of... Outla- he, he was not heroic. Um, he had some stature, he had a sort of a recognizable name, but he was certainly not coming um, from anywhere from anywhere like this. Um, uh, but anyway, so Gorlim. Now we have um, uh, Gorlim. Gorlim the, does anyone remember Gorlim's epithet in the Silmarillion? What's he called? Gorlim the... Gorlim the what? Gorlim the Unhappy. Yeah. Yeah, Gorlim the Unhappy. What does that mean? Yes, Carita. It means primarily, and Nancy, it means primarily unlucky. Um, Tolkien often uses hap in its old sense. And hap is the, the, that's a, um, unfortunate is the synonym. Um, But of course, fortuna, that's Latin, right? Hap is the is the good old English word uh, for fortune, 
Um, so to be unhappy just means to be unlucky, to be unfortunate. Um, so Gorlim the unhappy, as he's called in the Silmarillion, he's, he's Gorlim the unfortunate. Um, of course he is, Nancy, as you point out, unhappy in the modern sense as well. Um, but I think that uh, the, the fact that he is labeled Gorlim the unhappy, Gorlim the unfortunate, um, you know, this is true in a couple different cases, and I think that the senses in which Gorlim is unhappy in this story are really drawn out in this version. Um, and we see that, you know, the, the, the circumstances around um, the circumstances around Gorlim's situation are certainly very different. Um, I've said before, and I'm going to bring this back up again more in a little bit, um, I don't spend a lot of time going over the stuff that Christopher Tolkien does in his commentary, when you read his commentaries at the ends of the cantos, and especially the number one thing he's focused on doing in those is showing the similarities and differences between this, you know, sort of showing where this fits, how what's changed since the Book of Lost Tales, and what's different between this version and the Silmarillion version. Of course, he, he does a great job of pointing out the major differences. Um because his primary goal in editing the uh, the History of Middle-earth series is to show the development of the story. How did the stories change over time? How did these, these tales grow in Tolkien's mind as he went through? But what he doesn't do, it does sometimes, but what he certainly doesn't do all the time is say, so what? Right? Okay, so it's different. What's the effect of that? Right? Okay, so like he, he will explain... What are the differences between Gorlim's story here in the lay and as we see it in the published Silmarillion? And he's very good on that list of differences. But what I want to talk about is, again, where he never doesn't quite go, which is, so what? What is the effect? What is the story of Gorlim? Um, What is the emphasis on the story of Gorlim as we get it here in this poem compared to um, what we see in the Silmarillion? Um, So let's look. I have the, uh, the... I have a, a, a couple sort of longish pa- passages on Gorlim because I want to make sure to sort of get get the thing here. Lest Aelin... Okay, sorry. So, context here. Um, this is, remember, he's come by the house and has seen... So he's not been there, right? He doesn't... Root, unlike in the Silmarillion where he routinely comes back to... just He has this nagging doubt in the Silmarillion, remember? Did I, is Iona really dead? Maybe she got away and she's coming back to wait for me, so I'm going to go back and check and make sure. And the fact that he goes back there is observed by the spies of Sauron, and it's Sauron, not Morgoth, who's in charge of this business, um, so that they know that he comes there, and knowing that he comes there, they set a snare for him there deliberately. Right? That's how the story comes about in the Silmarillion version. That's distinctly different from the beginning. Gorlin comes here, and he's never been there, um, and he, but he sees this vision, right? But then he hears people chasing him. And I expected, I remember the first time I read this, I expected when, uh, uh, when, the, you know, when he hears the people chasing after him, they were going to catch him, because that's what happens in the Silmarillion, right? When he sees the vision, he you know, feels the hands of Sauron's hunters grabbing onto him. Um, but, of course, that's not what happens he runs, and that's where we... It's his running away here that where we uh, begin this passage. Lest Ilanel with him they slay, without a word he turned away, and like a wild thing, winding led his devious ways o'er stony bed of stream and over quaking fen, until far from the homes of men he lay beside his fellows few in a secret place, 
and darkness grew and waned, and still he watched unsleeping, and saw the dismal dawn come creeping in dank heavens above gloomy trees. A sickness held his soul for ease and hope, and even thraldom's chain, if he might find his wife again. But all he thought twixt love of lord and hatred for the king abhorred, and anguish for fair Eilenel, who drooped alone, what tale shall tell? What's the emphasis here on Gorlim's story? Starting with the fact that he is not captured at that moment, right? The fact that he gets away, and that we we see this. Yeah, uh, Nancy, it is incredibly painful, isn't it? Um, this anguish of Gorlim, um, the how we see him going over and over this. You know, again, remember, it's not. In the Silmarillion, we had that nagging doubt in his mind from the beginning, right? Now, this doubt has just thrust upon him, right? He's seen what looked like his wife. And so what does he do? He immediately tries to lead the enemies away. Because he's not sure if she's there or not, but if she is there, he wants to make sure she escaped. But now he's like, did she es- was it even her in the first place? And if it was her... Did she escape? And um, I, I mean, it's uh, you know, and the, this uh, this sickness, this uh, this torment, um, division twixt love of lord and hatred for the king of horde and anguish for fair Ionel. Notice how the poem, like, and we saw this in the lay of the children of Huron as well, um, the extent to which the poem really brings us into the sort of psychological and emotional situation of the characters far more deeply. Uh, than the more superficial prose versions did. Um, There is no version of the Turin story which is more painful, um, which is more sort of of poignant. Um, uh, So I think that's... um, uh, I, I think that that's... It seems to be a trend here, right? And so, you know, we never get this kind of agonizing on Gorlim's part in any of the prose versions, right? Um, yeah, yeah, Carita, I agree. You know, Carita says that she thinks this is sympathetic. She says, for me at least, it brings up that question of what I would be willing to do to save my beloved. Yeah, yeah, now, I agree. Christopher Tolkien says in, in his, you know, in his overview here, he, he characterizes the Gorlim treatment, says, Gorlim's treachery is made far worse. Um, which is true. In the published Silmarillion, he's broken, right? I mean, he's captured, and he, you know, facing torment, perhaps actually being tortured, and also being, you know, concerned about Ionel and believing she is also a prisoner, he gives in, right? Um, they're trying to get him to reveal Barahir's uh, uh, whereabouts, so all he does is, is cave and say, fine, I will tell you where Barahir is if you'll, if you'll reunite me with Ionel, right? Here, um, good, Kate, Kate, that's a great way to uh, express it. The betrayal is more active, but it's also a deeper sorrow. And again, we are, we are brought into um, this sort of emotional and psychological identification with Gorlim um, far, far more. Let's look at the actual betrayal here. 
Yet at the last, when many days of brooding did his mind amaze, he found the servants of the king, and bade them to their master bring a rebel who forgiveness sought, if haply forgiveness might be bought with tidings of Barahir the bold, and where his hidings and his hold might best be found by night or day. And thus sad Gorlim, led away unto those dark deep dolven halls before the knees of Morgoth Falls, and puts his trust in that cruel heart wherein no truth had ever part. Quoth Morgoth, I, Linnell the fair, thou shalt most surely find, and there where she doth dwell and wait for thee, together shall ye ever be, and sundered shall ye sigh no more. This guerdon shall he have that bore these tidings sweet, O traitor dear. For Ilanel she dwells not here, but in the shades of death doth roam, widowed of husband and of home, a wraith of that which might have been, methinks it is, that thou hast seen. Now shalt thou through the gates of pain the land thou askest grimly gain, thou shalt to the moonless mists of hell descend, and seek thy Ilanel. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, absolutely. Uh, I agree, um, Kate and Carita, that what is done to Gorlim is worse. You know what I think is the cruelest phrase, the worst thing that Morgoth says to Gorlim here, is the word methinks. A wraith of that which might have been, methinks it is, that thou hast seen. See the implications there? Right? Morgoth's like, I don't know. I don't know what you saw. It's probably nothing. Right? Just a chance, really. Right? You probably imagined it. It's bad enough when, as is, as happens in the published Silmarillion, um, this deliberate, you know, illusion is put up in order to deceive Gorlim, right? Um, but uh, but that's not what happens, right? That's not what we get uh, in uh, uh, in this poem. Instead, Morgoth's like, yeah, I have no idea. You know, I don't really know what happened at all. Um, uh, it um, could be anything, <laughs> right? Um, that is, you know, just the way that... Um, the way that Morgoth taunts Gorlin with that, right? Um, that is, it was all for nothing, man. Like, you just, mis- you just, it was just a fluke mistake that you made. Wow, you betrayed your, I mean, I could understand if you actually had seen her, you know, but, but man, you just betrayed your lord for absolutely no reason, right? Gosh, it sucks to be you, doesn't it, Gorlim? And and he has Gorlim absolutely in his power. He has Morgoth has nothing to gain from like completely demoralizing him in this way, from for you know for 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 taunting him, and not only you know putting him to death by torment, um, by physical torment, but by psychological torment as well. Right? I'm just gonna I'm just gonna I'm just gonna twist the knife because I can. It is an incredible glimpse into Morgoth's own completely superfluous cruelty there. It's unbelievable. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, uh, yeah, yeah, good. Uh, 
Rickall says, yeah, yeah, you can totally sense Morgoth's pleasure and satisfaction in the way he delivers his words. Yes, oh, traitor, dear, right? The sort of false affection uh, behind it there. Even that, oh, traitor, dear, right? Like, he knows how much Gorlim hates him, right? And so here's like, you know, it's like, oh, I'm g- you're my kind of guy, right? I'm glad you and I are sort of on the same wavelength here, Gorlim. Right? I mean, he knows how much that's going to burn Gorlim to hear. Um, just, um, just, just, just incredible. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, Yana has a wonderful question. Okay, Yana says that that last uh, second to last line there, line two thirty one. Uh, okay, now shalt thou through the gates of pain, the land that thou askest grimly gain, thou shalt to the moonless mists of hell descend and seek thy island out. And Yana says, uh, is is he referring to hell, like? afterlife, hell, um, or to Angban, which is presumably where they are right then, because of course Angband is called the Hells of Iron, um, and indeed in the in Tolkien's early thinking, um, the, the realm of Morgoth was actually associated with a literal afterlife hell, like that's where the that's where bad people went when they died. At least that's one, his thinking changed all around about that many times. Um, but there was a point in the, you know, early on that that was kind of on the table. Um, so sometimes, Yana, we can still see, I mean, even the published Silmarillion, it's called the Hells of Iron, right? That, that, that word is still used, even though by the time we get to the published Silmarillion, it's pretty clear that that word is being used only metaphorically, not literally, right? So, Yana, great question. Great question. Um, are there other occasions on which Morgoth speaks of going to hell, like, when, while he's sitting in Angband, right? Um... I'm not sure. Uh, I'm not. I'm not. I'm not sure. Um, um, yeah. Um, we'll come back to that, Yana. I have a theory. I have a theory, or rather, I think the explanation of that supports the theory I'm going to be talking about later on. Um, uh, but anyway, that's uh, but that's a great observation. Um, yeah, yeah. Okay, yeah. We'll get there. We'll get there in a minute. Um, okay, okay. Mm, yep. Yeah, all right. Sorry, I'm getting all I'm getting all distracted here. We do get a reminder now. Again, just in case we thought that it was really true, right? Now, notice, we don't know, and I was just talking about how, by saying methinks, uh, Morgoth is just absolutely, you know, torturing him um, egregiously there. At the time he says that, we don't actually know that. I mean, it's possible that it was a fluke, right? It's not, again, unlike the published Silmarillion, it's not a carefully orchestrated trap. It's, you know, he's just, he's wandering by there, and then he happens to see this thing, it looks like it could be a chance, right? Why would... Morgoth had that set up in advance, right? Well, we do get a glimpse sort of behind the scenes from the narrator just after this. Thus Gorlim died a bitter death and cursed himself with dying breath, and Barahir was caught and slain, and all good deeds were made in vain. But Morgoth's guile forever failed, nor wholly or his foes prevailed, and some were ever that still fought unmaking that which malice wrought. 
Thus men believed that Morgoth made the fiendish phantom that betrayed the soul of Gorlim, and so brought the lingering hope forlorn to naught that lived amid the lonely wood. Yet Baron had by fortune good, long hunted far afield that day, and benighted in strange places lay far from his fellows. Okay, so you see what we get here, right? One, we get the fact that he did, or at least men believe that Morgoth was lying, right? That Morgoth did make the fiendish phantom on purpose. That that was, in fact, a trap set for Gorlim, apparently, I guess, on a, you know, just at a hazard, right? Um, on the outside chance that Gorlim might ever come that way or something. But um, um, he, um, you know, but he's definitely, um, he's definitely... We're definitely told... Well, okay, no, no, we're not definitely... We're told that men believed it. It is suggested that that's the real answer to that. So we are, that is revealed here. But notice what else is being revealed here. Just, first of all, merely the fact that we're being shown behind the scenes, right? We're shown um, how these things are working. He said it was chance, but we see him manipulating chance. But what else do we see in this, uh, in this passage? There are two other things that we see very interestingly... Right, good one. Good point, Nancy. Uh, note that uh, Nancy notes that Gorlin curses himself, not Morgoth. Yes, that is um, that is an interesting point. He recognizes that although he has been placed in the you know, he's being killed by Morgoth, and 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 it is himself still that he blames. And Nancy, I'm not sure that ultimately that's not the saddest moment of Gorlin's story. You know, and he dies believing that it was all for nothing. That he was simply an idiot. Um, not that, I mean, it's not that dying knowing that you were a dupe is like way better, but still, I, I you know, I'm not sure. Um, uh, anyway, um, but what else? What else do you notice? Yes, good, Sharon. Baron's good fortune is set up in contrast to Gorlim's ill fortune. Absolutely. If, as we see. Yes, it was, as Morgoth said, it was by chance, right? Yeah, it it was by chance, but it was by chance that Morgoth was manipulating on purpose, right? He orchestrated the thing with Gorlim. But he doesn't seem to be the only one orchestrating things, right? If Gorlim is the unhappy, Baron is the happy. Not in the modern sense, necessarily, but he is the fortunate, is the word that's used. You know, he had by fortune good, long hunted far afield that day. So, by chance, Gorlin was undone, but by chance, Baron was saved. And thus we can see this sort of sense of a battle going on behind the scenes, right? We were talking about, you know, we were looking at a few passages in the Lay of the Children of Hurin where we seem to see some evidence that there was some back scenes battling going on, right? That we could see uh, the, the Valar on one side and another kind of taking a hand uh, in the events. Joe, yeah, Chance does seem like an active character here. I think we are supposed to be seeing that, but there's nothing in any of Tolkien's writings that gives us any reason to actually personify Chance, right? Um, Chance is something that's clearly... Or those things which appear to be Chance, as has already been revealed in Morgoth's case. And again, that seems to be how this works. It's very subtle, right? Morgoth said, oh, this was chance. Turns out, oh yeah, it was chance, but Morgoth had loaded the dice. And then immediately after that, we hear Baron, by chance, wasn't there. 
and we were left to conclude, wait a second, maybe somebody was loading those dice as well in the other direction, right? Um, and we have more reason to think that based upon what we hear at the beginning of this stand. Well, not at the beginning there, but um, uh, what is it, line tw- uh, 237? But Morgoth's guile forever failed, nor wholly or his foes prevailed, and some were ever that still fought on making that which malice wrought. Um, Morgoth rules, but he never completely... He's always thwarted. His victory is never perfect. Um, it's like there's something working against him and undoing um, all of his... Uh, all of his... all of his plans. Um, and that, I think, is... Uh, is is pretty cool. Arthur, the, I, I think there is a shift. Um, I, I'm not sure I'd go so far as to say a shift in the poetic style, but, but I see what you mean. These lines do sound... The register of these lines is a little bit different. Um, um, just in the way we're kind of backing up and looking at the big picture here. Um, The narrator speaks in a very different way, um, and the sound of it... uh, I mean... I don't know, I'd have to look more closely to see if I could point to um, some sort of concrete things that differentiate the style of these lines compared to the others. But the tone is certainly different. Whereas before, we were being brought very close alongside the emotional experience of Gorlim. Now we're at a major distance, right? Um, and being told all of these things very objectively and from the outside. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, oh, Arthur, I don't make too much of the, the half-line there at the end, because it's not. it doesn't end as a half-line. More, more continues after. I've just stopped there. Um, that, and that's a pretty common technique. Tol- a lot of Tolkien sentences end in the middle of the lines. Not all of them, um, but it's, uh, it's not uncommon for him to do that. That was even more common, I think, in the alliterative um, lines. But he still does that here quite a bit, too. Um, yeah, Karita, that's a good point. Um, uh, Karita points out that the word holy, um, nor holy or his foes prevailed, seems important. That is, he, he, he does, in fact, prevail, right? He does win, but he doesn't wholly win. Um, and I agree, I think that that's a very important, uh, a very important distinction. Um, now, Brianna points out very rightly that Gorlim does get to undo some of the damage that he does by warning Baron uh, in that dream later. Let's look at that. Because, you know, by good fortune, Baron is off on his own, so here's what happens when he's off on his own. In his sleep he felt a dreadful darkness creep upon his heart, and thought the trees were bare and bent in mournful breeze. No leaves they had, but ravens dark sat thick as leaves on bough and bark, and croaked, and as they croaked each neb let fall a gout of blood, a web unseen entwined him hand and limb, until worn out upon the rim of stagnant pool he lay and shivered. There saw he that a shadow quivered, far out upon the water wan, and grew to a faint form thereon, that glided o'er the silent lake, and coming slowly, softly spake, and sadly said, Lo, Gorlim here, traitor betrayed now stands, nor fear but haste, for Morgoth's fingers close upon thy father's throat. He knows your secret tryst, your hidden lair, and all the evil that he bare that he had done and Morgoth wrought. Okay. Um, uh, 
sorry, Kate Neville was just saying that that holy reminds her of a line in the Lord of the Rings. Um, let's see, Kate. I'm going to guess. I'm going to try to guess the line that you're trying to guess. Uh, are you thinking of the phrase deeds that were not wholly vain? That's my guess, right? Um, it's it works backwards, right? Say like you know that some of the deeds of old were not wholly vain; that it, they, they were mostly in vain. They didn't they didn't accomplish what they set out to accomplish, but they were not wholly vain. Um, uh, again, it, the, the sense is almost reversed there, but it's a similar kind of sense. Anyway, sorry, Kate, I love playing that game. Um, okay. Um, and uh, Sarah King is wondering, are these the moonless mists of hell uh, that Gorlim is in? Don't know. Don't know, Sarah. We don't really know much about the moonless mists of hell, really. Um, one thing that is clear, this is, you know, remember, this Gorlim's spirit is coming, it is in a dream. Right, so I don't know, you know, where, where this, you know, is Gorlam's spirit actually walking the earth? I, we don't have any reason to think that necessarily, because again, it's within his vision. Does this is this an expression of Gorlam's own will? That does seem to be so. I mean, it, it's certainly Brianna. It's nice to think, isn't it, that Gorlam is granted the opportunity to um, at least partially atone. Uh, for the the sin that he committed, right, for his treason, um, and thus help Baron to escape, and not only to escape, but also to recover um, uh, the ring of Bari here at least. So some good does come uh, from uh, uh, from um, his warning, his warning of Baron. Um, so, uh, you know, I, how do we read this? Do we read this that he is permitted by the Valar to come back and deliver this message? Is this an act of mercy on Gorlim? Is this an act of penance that he is, you know, sort of part of his penitential process? I don't know. Um, and Karita, I really like the phrase traitor betrayed as well. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, Sharon Neb is uh, is is means beak. That's that's a great old Tolkien word. I say old Tolkien word because you know, p- people read the Lord of the Rings and they're like, he uses so much archaic language, and it's like, dude, he uses his language is hyper modern in the Lord of the Rings compared to what his language used to be back in the teens and twenties. Uh, you know, read the uh, the Book of Lost Tales and you know the Way of Lathian and stuff, and there there you'll see him really whip out the uh, you know some of his other poetry from that period as as, as well. Um, so yeah, neb, neb, um, means, uh, means beak. It's a great, it's a great word. He uses the same word when describing the spider creatures that Baron comes in conflict with, uh, later on. Um, yeah, good. Um, yeah, good. Um, yeah, Arthur says, if I were Baron, I might distrust this vision because it feels like it might be coming out of Angband. Uh, I, I agreed, Arthur. I think it's interesting that Baron doesn't suspect it, actually. Um, it seems to be, that is, the connection between him and Gorlim. He seems to believe Gorlim. Um, he seems to be able, in some sense, to kind of trust the, the truth of, uh, of, uh, of, of Gorlim. But, um, um, yeah, and that the 
the ravens holding the blood in their mouth and letting it go. Yeah, it is uh, uh, ritual. It is uh, 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 really um, gross. It is really disturbing. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, so after this, Baron survives as the only thorn in Morgoth's side, right? He is now the only outlaw less left remaining. So the story of Baron is that of the the lonely, betrayed, abandoned, final, ultimate outlaw journeying alone, right? Um, so noticed when he's become a man, right? He was an elf in the Tale of Tenuviel, now he's a man. Um, he's human. But it's not just the fact that he's human. That's, of course, a major, major, major change. I, I like Christopher Tolkien's word, the, the cardinal change, as he calls it. It is certainly a cardinal change. Um, but it's not just that. His stature has changed completely. Um, stanza, t- or stanza 2, Canto 2, is such an important context for the rest of the poem. Um, and it utterly changes the footing on which the meeting between Baron and Luthien um, takes place. I think that's really important. Now, let's pause for a second and go back. Yana, I'm getting to, I'm getting to p- potentially where your, uh, where your hell observation might possibly fit in. Um, remember back to what we were talking about last time when I was uh, talking about uh, uh, Alyssa House Thomas's uh, brilliant theory about the origins of the Lay of Lathian and particularly of the Melilot manuscript, uh, the beginning of Manuscript Day. Um, and the explanation that Alyssa gives for why he might have done the whole Melilot and Maglor thing. Um, now, some of you might have been, if you were rereading the, you know, I wanted to come back to this because I kind of, in some sense, gave, I mean, we talked about it a lot last time, but I kind of gave it short shrift in the sense that we were only looking at that opening passage, right? But we have to remember the Melilot and Maglor thing goes well past those opening... I mean, if all we had were those opening lines, I mean, it was like the first 16 lines that we looked at before, you know, with the blonde Melilot and everything else. Um, If that's all we had, it would be kind of... It would seem like an easier theory to uphold, right? But it goes through Canto 2. I mean, it's Maglor. In, in, In the manuscript A, all this stuff that we've just been reading is Maglor all the way through. And so it's it's sort of tempting to say I mean, okay maybe with the Melilot thing but we're, we're clearly doing Baron's story now right? right? By Canto 2? So if so, why is he still called Maglor? Does this fit with Alyssa's theory about the opening of uh, Canto A? Yes. Yes, I think it does. Um, let's look at Christopher's analysis here. So this is what Christopher has to say in the beginning of his analysis about Canto 2. In this second canto, the story of the betrayal of the outlaw band is already an A close to its final form in Essentials, but there is no trace of the story in any form earlier than the first drafts of the Lay of Lathian, composed in the summer of 1925. In commenting on the tale of Tenuvio, I noted, it seems clear that at this time the history of Baron and his father Egnor was only very sketchily devised. There is in any case no hint of the story of the outlaw band led by his father and its betrayal by Gorlim the Unhappy before the first form of the Lay of Lathian. So you see what Christopher is doing, right? He's doing his thing, right? Where we've got, hey, okay, so here's how it fits in, right? Uh, the tale of Tenuvio, 
No hint of this background. So the whole story of Gorlim and and the outlaw band and everything, right? The the unhappy men um, springs into being here, and then he, you know, com- is comparing it already to the Silmarillion. So we see the three stages, right? And this is where this element of the story comes in. That's it, right? But he's not he's not doing the so what, right? He's just showing us that that's that that's what happens. But notice what is to me the most important fact here. There is no trace of Canto II's story earlier on. That is to say, there is no reason for us to believe that the story of Canto II is originally Baron's story from the story of Baron and Luthien. Right? We're so familiar with it from the published Silmarillion that we're looking at Gorlim the Unhappy and all these other things. Like, of course that's Baron's story, right? Not in 1925. It isn't necessarily, obviously, Baron's story. Remember, it wasn't connected with Baron at all before. This is the very first time it's ever been connected. I think it is quite possible, if not probable, that we're still in the Maglor and Melilot story at this point in Canto Two. All this stuff. In fact, if you think about it, that outlawry stuff, right? That that emphasis on outlaws against the usurping King Morgoth fits better into the Melilot and Maglor story, if, as Alyssa was suggesting, the story, the tale of, you know, the lay of Melilot and, and, and Maglor was going to be a, like a Breton lay, which was taking place, you know, in medieval Brittany, hence the Brocellian stuff. Um, remember, Christopher Tolkien is also puzzled, like, why is he using the name Brocellian, which is a, uh, which is a, a, a famous name for a forest in Brittany, right? Why would he do that? Oh, well, he would do that if he were telling a story about Broceliand and not about Beleriand at all, originally, right? Okay, okay. But again, that outlawry stuff, right? And evil, the evil king. And that's when the, the King Morgoth sounds weird. Doesn't that sound weird, coming from the Silmarillion? We never hear anybody. You know, Morgoth claims to be ruler and lord of the world, but we never, the, the phrase King Morgoth doesn't appear in the Silmarillion. We never think of him that way. Um, but... Again, in the context of a medieval Breton lay, that we would have an evil king who is not named Morgoth. Did you catch that in Christopher's notes? In in the A manuscript, what is the evil king's name? The evil king that we get described at the beginning of the second canto? It's not Morgoth, what's his name? Did you notice? The name Morgoth does not appear in the A manuscript. His name is Bauglir. Bauglir. Um, exactly, yeah, yeah, a couple of you got it. I didn't give you enough time to type. His name is Bauglir, right? So there's this evil King Bauglir who rules and is and we have this rebel you know, this 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 outlaw rebellion. Um and Tom, yes, King Bauglir is perfect for a medieval lay. It absolutely is perfect. Um and it makes it, you know, yes, he has used the name Bauglir and will use the name Bauglir again for Morgoth as one of his titles. This is a but again, that makes it perfect as a recycled name. Maglor, Caligorm, we see him recycling a lot of his names in the Mel- in the lay of Melilot and Maglor, right? Um, and so Bauglir makes perfect sense. I would have been surprised had he just recycled Morgoth, but it's not Morgoth that he's recycled, it's Bauglir. Um, so, uh, um, so, okay, so, so let's pause for a second. Let's, um, um, let's sketch out Let's sketch out the story of Melilot and Maglor here, right? Um, 
Uh, well, actually, hang on a second. Hang on a second. What about Agnor? Here's a, here's a, here's another counter argument to the the Melilot and Maglor theory, right? The fact, the idea that he had written started writing this separate Breton lay of Melilot and Maglor, um, and then sort of transformed it into the lay of Lathian. Um, and the counter argument would be on Egnor. Egnor is the name in manuscript A of Maglor, right? Who will become Baron. So the dude who is the parallel to Baron, his father's name is Egnor in the manuscript. And Baron's father's name was Egnor in the tale of Tenuviel. Ah! So that suggests that the Maglor character is associated with Baron from the beginning, right? So if we theorize that Cantos 1 and 2 were originally the story of Melilot and Maglor and Baron and Luthien weren't in mind, why is the Baron figure's father's name Egnor like it was in the original, right? Ah! I'm not convinced. I, th- I think it could still just be recycling of the name. Do I think it's a coincidence that the fathers of those two f- parallel figures, Baron and Maglor, are both named Egnor? Heck no, I don't think. I don't think it's a coincidence. And why not? <clears throat> because the story... that Nothing would be less... Had Tolkien sat down to write a Breton lay in the early 20s, right? I'm going to write a Breton lay, the story of Maglor, the story of Maglor and Melilot, right? Had Tolkien, while doing that, had Baron and Luthien, Baron and Tenuvio in the back of his mind as a model for the Melilot and Maglor story, nothing good would have surprised me less, right? Uh, so wait, but now this seems really confusing. So I'm suggesting he was writing this Breton lay as a parallel to Baron and Luthien and then made it into the, the lay of Baron and Luthien? Yeah, yeah, that's pretty much what I'm suggesting. Let me, let me, let me explain how this could work. Here's my, um, here's my fictional reconstruction. My theoretical fictional reconstruction of what might have happened. Right? Okay, here we go. Okay, so, here's Tolkien. Working on the Book of Lost Tales. He writes the tale of Tenuvio. This is the first full written version of the story of Baron and Tenuvio, as she's still called at that point. And he loves the tale of Tenuvio, right? He's, it's got deep personal resonance with him, with his memories of his courtship with Edith. And this is why it's so inconceivable that he's actually going to change the Tenuvio figure, L- the Luthien figure, into the blonde Melilot, right? I mean, can you even imagine this? Like, I'm going to go out on a whim and say that Edith probably knew that Tenuvio was inspired by her, right? I'm just going to go out on a limb and think that, that Edith, who wrote out the fair copy of big parts of the Book of Lost Tales, right? she was actively involved um, as a very active reader of the whole Book of Lost Tales thing. I'm going to go out on a limb and, and, and suspect that Edith uh, had, had, uh, uh, had, had latched on to the fact that there was a cute personal reference to their own courtship in the story of Baron Luthien, okay? So, this, so we're suggesting that in the 20s, right? So he comes back, they've now been married for some time, and he's like, uh, yeah, so honey, I'm going to take your char- the character, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to make, I'm going to, I'm now picturing her as a younger blonde. <laughs> like, Seriously? Like that's we, we that's we think that's where Tolkien is going. Sorry, Edith. No, no, no offense or anything. It's not like I'm trying to upgrade from you or anything. But uh, I mean, inconceivable, inconceivable. Um. Anyway, okay. Back to my hypothetical fictional reconstruction. So he he writes the tale of Tenuvio, and he loves the tale of Tenuvio, and the tale of Tenuvio. 
immediately becomes for him this like the quintessential love story of, of in in his imagination. It's like the paradigm of love stories, and. But he's moving on from the Book of Lost Tales, right? You know, he ran into the whole Alf Winna problem, and he had to he had to go back and 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 he would have had to rewrite the whole. So he's like, I'm just going to set the Book of Lost Tales aside and do something else, right? So he starts writing different poems and stuff. So, sometime in the early twenties, he says, "Hey, I'm going to do a Breton lay. I really like Breton Breton lays. I've been thinking a lot about Breton lays in my scholarship. Now I'm going to I'm going to I'm going to I'm going to do a Breton lay, right?" I'm going to do the Breton lay of Melilot and Maglor. I, I, I like the name Maglor. I'm going to recycle Maglor. I think I'm going to name Melilot's dad Kelligorm because it's a really good name for a woodland king. So I'll, I'll, we'll go there. Um, there will be the evil king Balglor, Balglia, right? And so, and I, so, I, and I, so he develops this whole story about Maglor, uh, son of Egnor. Now, he's got Baron and Tunubio, that great love story that he already wrote and that he loves, it's in the back of his mind the whole time, right? Of course it is, right? So that the story of Baron and Tenuvio kind of haunts this Breton lay as he's writing it, so that Melilot and Maglor are already kind of parallel to Baron and Tenuvio. How close would that parallel have been? Well, we don't really know, but, but anyway, you know... Is it shocking to me that when he's like, when he says, okay, the boyfriend, uh, Maglor, okay, okay, Maglor, uh, what's Maglor's dad's name? Uh, Egnor, right? Sure. Egnor, Maglor, that works really well together linguistically, and um, uh, and uh, better than Baron and Egnor, really. Um, and um, uh, and since, you know, and, and again, he's kind of like the, bar- the Baron parallel in this story, so it's fine. It's all good, right? Um, so he recycles Egnor with Baron and Luthien kind of in the back of his mind. Then he drops the poem. So he gets as far as this, right? He gets as far as the whole rebel band and the slay and the gorlim and the vision and everything else. Uh, and then he drops that poem, right? Doesn't finish his Breton lay. Then he's writing the way of the children of Hurin, and as we saw, he gets to the point where he's like, I can't take it any longer. I have to stop and write the way of Baron and Luthien. It's like popping out all over the place as I'm trying to rewrite the children of Hurin. Obviously, what I really want to write is the way of Baron and Luthien, so I'm stopping and I'm going to come back to the way of Baron and Luthien. And at that point, he picks up his old manuscript of the Melilot poem, and he's like, hey, yeah, this works. I'm not going to finish this poem, right? I decided to get, you know, I decided not to do this whole Breton Lay thing, but look, I've got all this. I like this stuff. Tolkien really liked the stuff that he had written before, and he rarely trashed it. Um, that is, I mean, so often we see it continuing to come back and being kept draft by draft, even when it doesn't make all that much sense. This is why those first few chapters of The Fellowship of the Ring sound so much different than the rest of The Fellowship of the Ring, because he still keeps retaining these elements from the very earliest drafts when the story was totally different than it later on came to be, and yet he keeps them and keeps them and keeps them around. Okay, so uh, exactly, Kate, as you say, he's not going to just He's not just going to waste it, right? He takes and he's going to recycle that whole poem. So he goes, but he doesn't re- he doesn't start again. He goes back and he touches up that original manuscript, right? Going to make a few changes, right? Um, uh, you know, but it's still got the old names in it. But he, you know, he 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 just sort of con- continues on the new poem uh, from there. So then, according to this theory, the point at which the names in the A manuscript shift to Baron and Luthien is where he's really begun the Lay of Lathian, where he ceases to be just revising that abortive project that he's now adapting and saying, okay, 
Melaloth and Maglor kind of always were a bit of a ripoff of of Luthien and and and, and Baron, right? So I'm just going to go whole hog. I'm going to I'm going to transform this into. I'm going to make use this as the foundation of uh, my poem, my extended poem about Baron and Luthien. And then of course when he makes the typescript, he goes he changes the names from the beginning, right? And now we've got Thingol and we've got uh, Luthien and we've got Baron and we've got and we get Bara here, um, which is a new thing, uh, and we get King Morgoth, right? Still king. Right, because we're keeping that phrase because it was in the original, but um, uh, but we're going to change his name from Balgir to Morgoth to make that clear. Remind, I'm just making this up, right? It's, I'm not saying I, this, this. I'm saying this with no authority, and all I'm doing is just sort of extending Alyssa's idea. Alyssa, of course, you can if you think my if you have any uh, um, uh, uh, refinements or. Uh, or anything to on my on my little theory here uh, I'd be happy be happy to hear them but um uh, but anyway I'm just sort of thinking about first of all I want to I want to sort of say in specifics this seems to me to make you know this this is why I love uh, why why I have loved Alyssa's idea so much ever since I first heard it because again it's the kind of thing that once you start thinking about it, it just it makes everything quick into place it makes perfect sense of the things which are so mysterious and strange and bizarre about the beginning of this poem. You can, again, all the way through, right? Baron and Gore, you know, the Gorlim and the outlaw thing that happens in Canto 2, there's a good reason why there was no hint of it in the tale of Tenuvio, Christopher. It wasn't there, right? That's Maglor's story. Maglor Melilot's boyfriend's story, not Baron's story. It's only when he decides to make that into the Lay of Lathian that now that becomes Baron's story. Um... So, um, yeah, yeah. Um, so, uh, anyway, um, the bigger point here, the reason I'm dwelling on this is, uh, um, just to kind of say, isn't textual criticism fun? Going back and looking at manuscripts and trying to piece this together, because it's not just about, you know... Looking at you know earlier versions and revisions and things like that can sound so pedantic, right? And then he changed the name from this spelling to that spelling. He changed spelled it with an e instead of an a, and it's like wow, that's incredibly boring. Um, but see how much fun it can be uh, when you really get into this kind of detective work uh, and trying to. I mean, it, it, it's uh, it's it's the kind of thing that does get, I think anyway, really gripping and fun. Okay. Enough sidebar. I shall now more or less permanently leave Melilot and Maglor behind because... Uh, oh, but Yana, hell! You see? You see? That line that King Bauglier delivers to Maglor in the Melilot, in the Breton Lay? Of course he would refer to hell, right? It's like a medieval Breton Lay. So of course he would talk about you know joining her down in hell. And Tolkien just transposes those words to the mouth of Morgoth and Angban, where they do make less sense. And it's hard for me to imagine, I mean, maybe, maybe, but it's hard for me to imagine that Tolkien would have put those words natively, organically, into Morgoth's mouth, had he written the speech for Morgoth. But it seems to me a very um, unexceptional thing for Tolkien to have left in Morgoth's mouth, um, under the circumstances of a revision like this. He does leave those kinds of... I mean, that's why we get, you know, references to to 
express trains in chapter one of the Fellowship of the Ring, right? There are no such anachronistic references later on in the Lord of the Rings. The idea of a reference to an express train in the two towers is a crazy idea. But it's there in the chapter one, right? Why? Because it was there originally when it fit within the narrative style, like the narrative style of The Hobbit. It, they, the, the anachronisms, and there are many, not within the story, but within the, the narrator, the, the language that he uses, his reference to Christmas trees, his reference to express trains. Um, uh, there's, there's that other one, the, the um, Bilbo's scream in Bag End in chapter one sounds like an express train coming out of a tunnel. Um, anyway, um, so yeah, so Yana, hell in the way of Melilot would be a purely literal thing. I see no reason not to think that. Um, this King Bauglier guy, whoever exactly he was, um, would make a reference to hell. Why wouldn't he, right? He's a medieval king. Even if he's like a medieval fairy king, he still might, right? Even if there is something otherworldly about him, and we can't rule that out, um, even within the context of a Breton lay, um, still... No reason not to have him make a, a literal reference to hell, even though, again, Morgoth probably wouldn't do that. Um, yeah, good. Anyway, okay, yeah, talking foxes, Kate, exactly another classic example of the kind of thing that we see in the beginning of the Fellowship of the Ring that we don't elsewhere. And again, why do we still see it? Even when Tolkien had decided to go another way? Because he leaves stuff in. It's what he does. It's what he does. Uh, I mean, it's amazing. Um, Christopher often will say something like, it is striking to find how close to the final form this, you know, when he's when he's looking at the first drafting, you know, the first version of a story that will later make the published Silmarillion or something, and he, he will say, you know, it is remarkable how close uh, the, the, you know, how, how nearly this has achieved the final form. And I want to say, yeah, that is remarkable, but you know, Christopher, you could put that the other way around, too, and say, it's remarkable how the final form has stuck to the original <laughs> drafting, right? Um, and not left it behind. You could say it that, you know, it's kind of two sides of the same coin to some extent. Um, but again, that, that, that seems to me very much in the spirit of Tolkien's revision. But uh, onward, onward and upward. Let us uh, leap plunge forward into Canto 3. We're making such great progress tonight. This is awesome. Um, I want to look at Thingol and Millian. But Thingol stayed, enchanted, still, one moment to hearken to the thrill of that sweet singing in the trees, enchanted moments such as these from gardens of the Lord of Sleep, where fountains play and shadows creep, do come, and count as many years in mortal lands. With many tears his people seek him ere they sail, while Thingol listens in the dale. But thereafter but an hour him seems, he finds her where she lies and dreams, pale Melian with her dark hair upon a bed of leaves. Beware! There slumber and asleep is twined. He touches her tresses, and his mind was drowned in the forgetful deep, and dark the years rolled o'er his sleep. Thus Thingol sailed not on the seas, but dwelt amid the land of trees, and Melian he loved divine, whose voice was potent as the wine the Valar drink in golden halls, where flower blooms and fountain falls. But when she sang it was a spell, and no flower stirred, nor fountain fell. Okay. Um, couple things here. Um, 
Yeah, Carita says, beautiful magical ladies are dangerous, man. Absolute beware, right? Beware. That beware is to me the most striking thing. Now, the role of this, um, the role of this scene, um, on the one hand, it plays one really simple role. It, it's 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 a foreshadowing, and it also creates a certain amount of irony in the showdown scene between Baron and Thingle, right? That is, you know, here's Thingle like, oh, how dare you find this magical lady who's so far above you in the woods and presume to... You know, and it's like Mr. Hypocrite, right? Um, So it makes his hypocrisy more keen that we have this memory of it. Um, um, And again, it's just simply a foreshadowing. But as foreshadowing, it works in a very interesting way, Right? Um, Melian and Luthien, Kate, do both have uh, uh, the, this power of sleep, right? We see uh, uh, we see it's the th- it's the thing that enables Luthien to escape later on. Um, so that's uh, it's true, and we, so we do see the similarities and the parallels between personally between Thingol, between Melian and Luthien, um, and in the situations between them. But um, yes, Arthur, you've got it exactly right. Um, Arthur says perhaps it's just because Luthien is a lesser daughter, a lesser daughter of a greater mother. But I can't help but contrast how Melian lays a spell on Thingol, but Baron lays a spell on Luthien. That's absolutely, Arthur, what I focus on here, too. And it's what I think is so striking. This, of course, is foreshadowing of what's going to be happening, and we do see the parallel between them, but but they're not parallel. Or they're not exactly parallel. There's a hugely important difference. In fact, it's almost a reversal. This establishes the norm. This is kind of what happens with Thingol is what's supposed to happen. When you come across an elf queen in the woods... And you dare to approach her, something's going to happen to you, right? A spell will be laid upon you. It might be awful. You might be killed. You might get turned. You you know, it's any number of things. You might be turned into a beast. You might be given an ass's head. Who knows what's going to happen to you, right? You might just go into stasis and fall into a magic sleep for who knows how many centuries. Um, but that's not what happens to Baron. Right, so just in case we haven't read the right books, right? I'm thinking about Eustace and the Voyage of the Dawn Treader. In case we've read none of the right books, and so we don't know what we should be expecting when Baron leaps out of the bushes and chases after Luthien um, when he meets her, we're given a specific setup for that. Right, here's what normally happens in that kind of a circumstance. And the effect of that is absolutely to make the encounter between Baron and Luthien the more striking, right? That moment where his words cast a spell on her and she turns and has mercy on him and enables him to catch her. Um, the, the miraculous reversal of that scene is preemptively sort of emphasized um, by this. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, Tom, as Tom Hillman points out, it is, of course, also perfectly natural. Uh, men are often hypocrites when it comes to their daughters and their daughters' suitors, absolutely. Um, uh, yeah, no, I mean, it's, it's, it, it is a very, in that way, it's a very verisimilitudinous piece of characterization, right? Um, 
we might not like Thingol, but again, it, it does help us to kind of, uh, you know, understand him, kind of empathize with him. He's It makes him, I was about to say, more human, which doesn't seem quite right under these circumstances, but I think you know, um, I think you know what I mean. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, good. Tom adds the reversal of roles and the casting of spells is the proof of doom. Yeah, the proof of uh, the, the great doom that lies upon Baron. We'll come back to that. Um, the, st- the encounter between Baron and Luthien, tempted as I am to read the entire thing, I'm not going to read the entire thing because it's long and a lot of it is quite similar to Lady's Leaf on Linden Tree, as Christopher Tolkien points out. This is another place I feel bad because I feel like I'm, I'm, I'm sort of beating up on Christopher Tolkien's commentary. It's, I don't mean to suggest that again. He's what he does is perfectly useful. Um, you know, it's not his fault that he's not setting out to do what I'm, what I personally like to do. Um, so again, you know, no. Uh, no blame to him. But again, I do think it's interesting um, that he points out differences and similarities between the version here and in the poem. Um, but yet again, he doesn't do analysis of those. He doesn't discuss those differences. Um, and uh, I want to look at a few things. I do find, I you know, he, he mentions the poem. Um, and I agree with his basic premise that this the scene as we get it in the Lay of Lathian is more closely connected to Light as Leaf on Linden Tree than it is to the version of their meeting in the Tale of Tenuvio. I certainly agree with that. Um, but there are some very important differences between what we get in this poem and what we got in uh, in the Tale of Tenuvio. Um, or, sorry, in, in, the, in Light as Leaf on Linden Tree. Let's uh, look at one of my favorite of these. Um, the subtitle I gave to this um, uh, to this slide, he forgot his loneliness. Um, that's the line uh, from Light as Leaf on Linden Tree when Baron first sees Luthien, and remember he was he came and he was weary and he was lonely. We weren't told where he'd been or what he'd been doing. Right, that's there's no hint of that in the in the poem either. Um, in the Linden the Linden Tree poem, I mean. Um, uh, so, but whereas we're just told he forgot his loneliness in the poem, that one concept, that one line, that one word, really, almost, is expanded tremendously, and here's what we get uh, in the Lay of Lathian instead. And I love this, this, this passage. He gazed, and as he gazed, her hair within its cloudy web did snare the silver moonbeams, sifting white between the leaves, and glinting bright the tremulous starlight of the skies was caught and mirrored in her eyes. Then all his journey's lonely fare, the hunger and the haggard care, the awful mountain stones he stained with blood of weary feet, and gained only a land of ghosts and fear, in dark ravines imprisoned sheer, there mighty spiders wove their webs, old creatures foul with bird-like nebs that span their traps in dizzy air, and filled it with clinging black despair, and there they lived, and sucked the bones, lay white beneath on the dank stones. Now all these horrors, like a cloud faded from mind. First of all, that's an awesome sentence. Um, let's uh, let's do let's play a grammar game again. Um, 
what's the subject and verb of that sentence? Look back, the sentence starts on line 563 and goes all the way to 576. Right? We've got a 14-line sentence there. What's the subject and verb? I think the syntax of this sentence is, is important. It's, it's uh, very revealing about the whole flow of the poem in this moment. What's going on in this scene? What's the subject and verb? It's tricky. Yes. The verb is faded. In line 576, the antepenultimate word of the sentence is the main verb. Faded from mind. And, Tim, you got it. Journey. Journey. Um, well, fair, technically. His journey's lonely fair. Then all his journey's lonely fair, the hunger and the haggard care. What it, what it, what did all these things do? Okay, technically all, actually, is the subject. But anyway, that, that stuff, right? All that stuff faded. How does this sentence work? Um, it starts off by describing the thing, and then it, it you know, the, in describing the subject, what it is that's fading from his mind, we get this continuous dilation, this almost uh, sort of nightmarish, um, association, you know, like a, like a, a sort of horrible memory association as your mind leaps from one terrible memory to another in this uh, in this you know rapid and inescapable train, right? From uh, all his journeys, lonely fare. It starts off with the loneliness, like in the poem, right? All this, you know, all of his weary journey. You know, and the hunger. He was it, was it was a hungry journey. Didn't have much food on this journey. It was awful. It was awful. And the haggard care. He was he was he was really worried. Lots of anxiety in this journey. Yeah, it's pretty bad. Um, the awful mountain stones. He stained with blood of weary feet. Oh, that's 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 pretty bad. Um, and gained only a land of. And and after doing that, he gained only. You know. What did he accomplish by the, that feat of, of crossing the, the, you know, the rocks where he's leaving his own blood, this trail of his own blood upon the rocks? Because, of, um, well, he, he only gained a land of ghosts, right? Oh, boy, and there, there was fear. My, and then the spiders, right? All this stuff just gets kind of, all these things faded from mind, right? I love the fact that we don't get any of these details of Baron's journey, right? Baron's journey is just mentioned at the end of Canto 2, in brief, and we only hear about it in flashbacks as we're told he's forgetting about it, right? Um, as if to emphasize how uh, all of, the, you know, the, 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 the sort of the extremity of all of the things that he is forgetting... Um, there's this tremendous. Well, let's let let's keep reading. But again, you see how the syntax works. The way that it just, this sentence just kind of runs away with itself. We get caught up in this string of of terrible memories from Baron, but then we come back. Now all these horrors, like a cloud, faded from mind. Right? We kind of cut them off and say they faded from mind. But he's not done. The waters loud falling from pine clad heights. No more he heard. So I get uh I love the negatives here, right? All of these things, he stopped thinking about them. These sounds, he stopped hearing. 
Right. Those waters gray and froar, that bittersweet he drank and filled his mind with madness. Yeah, yeah, those, those waters. All was stilled. He wrecked not now the burning road, the paths demented where he strode endlessly, and ever new horizon stretched before his view, as each blue ridge with bleeding feet was climbed, and down he went to meet, battle with creatures old and strong, and monsters in the dark, and long, long watches of the haunted night, where evil shapes with baleful light in clustered eyes did crawl and snuff beneath his tree, not half enough the price he deemed to come at last to that pale moon when day had past to those clear stars of elfiness, the heart's ease and the loveliness. The final, so all of these negatives, right? He, 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 he no longer thought about that. He no longer heard this. He no longer wrecked about that, right? He no, he no longer thought about that. All of these things, he now considered not half enough the price he deemed to come at last to that pill. It was all worth it. He'd have gone through twice as much to get to this point, right? He just, again, I just weigh all of this against he forgot his loneliness, right? Um, what this, um, uh, <laughs> excellent, Tom. Tom says, yet were his suffering good for this? Um, absolutely, absolutely. Um, the way that Tolkien uses Baron's memories of his evil road and the you know the passage through and the spider, the giant hideous spiders that he fought, and and all of his sufferings and torments, um, and just uses that as a frame to put us in the again so much more powerfully in the position of Baron and what he was thinking and what he was feeling when he was encountering Luthien for the first time. Right, all these things were worth it, more than worth it. All of this stuff was forgotten compared to this. Um. Yeah, it's, um, yeah. Oh, cool, cool. Um, yeah, nice, nice. Um, uh, uh, Nancy points out that uh, she loves the line that ends with long and then the next one starts with long. Notice all the enjambment, the way that these lines really all tumble into each other. Um and that that's a really fun one, right? And monsters in the dark and long, long watches of the haunted night. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. That's that's really that, that's a that's a particularly fun uh, piece of enja- of of enjambment there. Um, so anyway, the way that Tolkien has has integrated the new epic background. Thanks, Maglor, Melalot's boyfriend, for the uh, new epic background for Baron. Um, it's just it's just gorgeous and it's so power so emotionally powerful the way that puts in it, it the, the the sort of additional meaning the additional sort of pressure that is put upon the meeting with uh, between Baron and Luthien it's just I mean it was already amazing uh, in the poem uh, you know in Light as Leaf on Linden Tree um, and it's now just much much more um, I couldn't um, I couldn't help but. Uh, point out this next bit. It's a really small thing, but it really jumped out at me. Um, I can't point... What's with me in the picking on Christopher Tolkien today? Christopher Tolkien points to this as a similarity uh, between the uh, Lightest Leaf on Linden Tree and the Lay of Lathian, um, that the moths, um, the moths that were there in the... the, Remember the lumbering moths, right? Um, 
uh, they uh, they were there in the in, in in the Lindenjury poem, and they've they've remained in the Lay of Lathan. He points that out as one of the similarities between the poem and this, and that's all he says. Notice anything interesting here? Then stared he wild and dumb. So he's just jumped out the first time, right? And um, Luthien and Dairon scatter. Then stared he wild in dumbness bound at silent trees, deserted ground. He blindly groped across the glade to the dark trees in to the dark trees encircling shade, and while she watched she's not run away, she's hiding there, right, watching him. And while she watched with veiled eyes, touched her soft arm in sweet surprise. Like startled moth from death-like sleep, in sunless nook or bushes deep, she darted swift, and to and fro with cunning that elvish dancers know, about the trunks of trees she twined a path fantastic. Yeah, Carita, you've got it. See the deck? Again, Christopher Tolkien casually says this is a similarity. I mean, yeah, in the sense that it's a moth, but, but, but... She's the moth this time. Last time he was the one. The moths came in with Baron, and they followed after her just like he follows after her, right? He was the moth. Now she is explicitly being compared. She, now we've got this moth simile for her, right? But she's like a moth hiding in the bushes, right? Um, uh, darting from death-like sleep in sunless nook or bushes deep, right? Um, where do moths go in the daytime? Well, they hide deep in the bushes, right? That's where, that, that's where they go. Um, and she is startled out of, out of the, you know, she was as still as, uh, you know, as still and as, as hidden um, as, a, as, a, as a moth in death-like sleep. Um, and uh, yeah, Sharon, we have no, no lumbering whatsoever, right? Um, uh, Tom, what a great question. Tom Hillman asks, whose is the sweet surprise? Or, or yeah, Tom, like, for, for whom is that surprise? Presumably they're both surprised, perhaps, right? Well, she, he's got to be more surprised than she is, right? Because she knows where she is and he doesn't. She presumably has much more awareness of his. He's the one um, groping across the gray, the glade in the darkness, presumably not silently. Baron probably doing a bit of lumbering here, right? Um, but she is the one who is silent and, and hidden and still. So I wouldn't think if anybody's surprised, it's got to be him who's surprised. And it would, of course, Tom, make sense that his surprise would be the sweet surprise. Um, yeah, Kate points out that she is bird-like as well later on, absolutely. Um, but I love the reversal. And I love the foreshadowing that's sort of implicit in that reversal. Right? We've already seen, we did get moths earlier on, too. She in the moonlight was being followed by moths, just like it was in the poem. So that similarity is there. Um, and so we do have that uh, um, as, a, as a sort of a setup of his, and, and the way that he is attracted to her, and comes blindly groping, leaping, lumbering out uh, to pursue her uh, in this very first encounter um, is very blind and moth-like, right? So we do have that anticipation of Baron's own attraction to her in the moths, but then it gets reversed, right? foreshadowing the reversal that's going to come later on when he casts a spell on her. Yes, Arthur, it's very mothopoetic. Absolutely, a very mothopoetic moment. Very good, yeah. Yeah, I agree. Um, <laughs> um, good, good, good. Okay. Um, 
let's look at the binding spell. But as as she went, this is not the same time. This is um, this is later when he sees her uh, for that third time. He saw her from a distance, a second time um, in the winter time, and now as spring is coming. He sees her for the third time. But as she went, he swiftly came and called her with her t- with the tender name of nightingales in elvish tongue, that all the woods now sudden rung, Tenuviel, Tenuviel, and clear his voice was as a bell, its echoes wove a binding spell, Tenuviel, Tenuviel, his, lo- his voice such love and longing filled, one moment stood she, fear was stilled. One moment only, like a flame, he leaped towards her as she stayed and caught and kissed that elfin maid. He's like a flame. It's like the flame is catching the moth, right? Oh, man. What do you notice? What do you notice here about this about this moment, specifically about how Tolkien treats... Um, uh, treats this in his verse compared to what we saw in Light as Leaf on Linden Tree. Um, yes, uh, Kimber, we do see. It is interesting that her name is the spell that he says, and that we see is still identical. Tenuviel, Tenuviel. Of course, the, the meter is still the same as in uh, Light as Leaf on, on Linden Tree, so that still works. Um, um, so yeah, so his, his the, the, it's, it's, um, it's un, um, th- that's unchanged, and I think that that's really important. Um, more, more, what else? Yeah, Tom, it's the echoes. It's the echoes. And that's really important. I don't know if you remember that line um, from the original poem. It's a little unfair to expect you to have Lightest Leaf on Linden Tree memorized, but, um, but I did actually refer to this line in the title of the last class. Um, in this spot in Lightest Leaf on Linden Tree, his voice was like the echo of a spell. Um, and now its echoes wove a binding spell. See the difference? There's nothing echoey about this binding spell. The spell is binding, Right? His, and clear his voice was as a bell, its echoes wove a binding spell. His voice, like echo of a spell, is very different, right? The implication in Light as Leaf on Linden Tree, his voice isn't a spell. It's like the echo of a spell. It's like a spell, but it isn't a spell. Um, here, the wording describing his voice and the power of his voice on her is stronger. Um, the echoes, the mere echoes of his voice weave a binding spell about her. Um, and that, I think, is really, really interesting, right? Um, but why? Why? Um, his voice, such love and longing filled, one moment stood she, Look at the syntax of that for a second. His voice, such love and longing filled. When you think about that line, it doesn't actually say what we think it means. right? You, you read that line, that line and it sounds obvious, right? His voice is filled with such love and longing, right? That's not what the line says. 
What does it say? Yeah, his voice filled love and longing. His voice, such love and longing, filled one moment, stood she. What's being filled with what, right? Um, It filled one moment, Sharon. That does seem to be literally longing filled one moment. Um, It it seems, the, the, the way that he's shifted the syntax there, it's enough to evoke the idea that his voice is filled with love and longing, but the ambiguity of the syntax, I would call the syntax of that line ambiguous, but I think it's deliberately ambiguous, right? It's Because it's not just that his voice is filled with love and longing, it's that his voice fills her with love and longing. Uh, and that's what stills her fear. It does both, right? Both are filled. That's why filled is kind of ambiguously sitting in the middle uh, of that sentence. Isn't that awesome? Um, and notice the way, in, again, the binding spell of his words. Notice how. Notice what uh, what poetic technique Tolkien uses to emphasize the incantatory nature of his words, um, the power, the binding power of his words. How does he uh, How does he emphasize that through his uh, through his poetic technique there? Notice what happens with the rhymes? It's very simple. The thing I'm referring to is very simple, that is. It's very simple, but it's kind of unusual in this poem. What's the rhyme pattern of this poem? Couplets, right? I'm asking such easy questions, you are like, this has got to be a trick question, right? It's in couplets. Um, but yeah, Kimber, we get that break with Tenuvio, right? It's one of the very few places in this poem where we get the same rhyme repeated for two couplets in a row. Really simple effect, but you can hear it, right? He swiftly came and called her with that tender name of nightingales and elvish tongue that all the woods now sudden rung Tenuviel, Tenuviel, and clear his voice was as a bell, its echoes wove a binding spell Tenuviel, Tenuviel. These four lines framed by Tenuviel, Tenuviel, right? And so the, 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 the sort of momentum of that rhyme Tenuviel, as a bell, binding spell Tenuviel, right? Um, it's it's a it's a small thing, um, but uh, but it but it has I think a really important kind of oral effect there that really makes that whole set of four lines um, framed by her name uh, really um, really stand out. Um, several good great observations that you guys are making here. Um, uh, yeah. Oh, very good, Kimber. Kimber is noticing that it breaks uh, for uh, flame, uh, the the rhyming pattern. Good, yeah, Kate was just pointing that out, too. Um, yeah, good, good. Um, flame has no couple, right? One moment stood she, fear was stilled. One moment only, like a flame, he leaped towards her as she stayed and caught and kissed that elfin maid. Um, barren like a flame is on its own. Right, one moment only, as Sarah Lagarde points out. Um, yeah, yeah, uh, and good, as Sarah 
also then points out, it picks up on her again, but as she went, he swiftly came and called her with a tender name, one moment only like a flame, um, recalls recalls that. Yes, yes, it does. Um, really, uh, uh, really fun stuff. Really, I... Uh, I just, I just, I just love this stuff. Um, he caught and kissed that elfin maid. We do get a kiss here. Now, as several of you are pointing out, um, um, and uh, Tom, I do agree. The, the there's there's an important assonance there. Flame, stayed, and made. Even though flame doesn't rhyme with stayed and made, and we do get a couplet in stayed and made. Um, that, that flame doesn't stick out like a sore thumb. It doesn't just. It doesn't. Although it breaks the pattern, it doesn't feel like it breaks the pattern when you're reading it um, because of that assonance. I, I think that that would be why. Um, the two other great observations you guys are making. First, how closely parallel but reversed this is to Thingol and Melian, right? Um, so we can see sort of the power of that established of that established norm. Um, yeah, as Kate, as you say, it's really almost the mirror image um, because it's, you know, it's her voice that captures him. Um, yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, the difference between her, Melian, just lying there, right, and him approaching her and touching her, um, and, um, Luthien turning, and, you know, she, she turning to flee, but stopping, and him, you know, him catching her. Anyway, um, uh, and of course the other point, as several of you are very aptly reminding us, remember this is about release from bondage, right? Um, uh, sorry. Almost had to sneeze, but didn't quite. Okay, I think I think I think I've I think I've escaped it. Um, release from bondage, right? Um, caught and kissed that elfin maid, right? Ah, so now Luthien is in bondage, right? Is this bondage or is this, this the release from bondage? Um, I get, we see the, the the way all of the different the, the complexities and the ironies of that title, and the way that works through all of this. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, okay, uh, we're going to we're going to so not get as far behind as we're threatening to get. Let me let me just skip ahead and look at. Uh, I only want to look at one passage each from the next two cantos, um, which is not really fair. There's a lot more, of course, that we could talk about. Um, one reason that I am not spending as much time on Canto Four, apart from the fact that I don't have as much time to spend, but um, but the other reason is. It is. Now, here I wholeheartedly agree and fully endorse Christopher Tolkien's uh, analysis of Canto Four that it is very close to the published Silmarillion. Um, and we do see that he... There are some deviations, um, but it's very, very similar. Um, that's no reason not to talk about it at all, but, um, but uh, there's sort of less, I think, to... Um, to try to sort of capture the spirit that makes this poem kind of unique in it. Um, but one passage that I certainly couldn't resist talking about is the morning after, when Baron wakes up, uh, and we get this passage. 
which I find so striking in this poem. And thus in anguish Baron paid for that great doom upon him laid, the deathless love of Luthien, too fair for love of mortal men, and in his doom was Luthien snared, and deathless in his dying shared, and fate them forged a binding chain of living love and mortal pain. Beyond all hope her feet returned at eve, when in the sky there burned the flame of stars, and in her eyes there trembled the starlight of the skies, and from her hair the fragrance fell of elven flowers in elven dell. And fate them forged a binding chain. Notice this, his voice wove a binding spell, and now fate is forging a binding chain. Yeah, you know, it's about the release from bondage, right? Um, Thus in anguish Baron paid for that great doom upon him laid. Waking up and finding her not there, thus in anguish Baron paid for that great doom. Um, I don't think Tolkien is here suggesting that that really bad feeling that Baron had, because, I mean, it's a really bad, he feels, he thinks that she's gone, right? Um, Remember, Baron knows that this whole thing is working against the script, right? Um, he knows that when you are a mortal and you go jumping out after a fairy princess dancing in the moonlight, it's not going to end well for you, right? That just never works out for the mortal in question, right? Baron knows this full well, so he wakes up the next morning and is in anguish. Right now it comes. Now the other shoe falls. Right, I knew that was too good to be true, but now I have to endure the loss, not just the, the you know he's been it's been months. Right, it's been the whole the turning of the months as we saw in Light as Leaf on Linden Tree, that he's been in Doriath and he's been pursuing her, and now it finally came together. Right, and then he lost it. Okay, right. So he thinks this is forever. He has every reason to think it's forever. Um, but, uh, um, but of course, even that moment has a happy ending. But when he, so when he talks about the anguish with which Baron paid for the great doom upon him laid, um, this is only one moment, right? Um, the clear message, I think, being conveyed here is Baron isn't living happily ever after here. This is not a happily ever after moment, um, Although this, although things work out unusually well for the mortal in this position, he's done better than any mortal could possibly expect to in a parallel story. I don't think that means he's not going to pay a cost. He's not going to pay a price. That this stuff comes without a cost, right? It does come with a cost, and he's going to pay for it, um, and he's going to pay for it in anguish. Um, he is bringing himself in for a world of hurt. But that's okay. We already saw the world of hurt that he's left behind, which he considers like half the price. You know, more than, you know, twice that would have been worth it to come to that moment before, right? So he, we know he's he's willing to pay that price. Um, but it there is there is a price. Um, Kimber is thinking that it sounds like um, uh, Baron is upset that Luthien's fate has been messed up. Possibly, I don't know to what extent Baron knows that right now. Um, um, he knows that she's too fair for love of mortal men, right? Absolutely. And Kimber, you're certainly right that later on as the story progresses, 
um, a central part of Baron's anguish is the sense that he, his knowledge that he's bringing her into danger. Um, and we will see when we get to, and we will totally get to, discussing the later cantos where he's continually trying to leave her behind, um, uh, we will see that informing his decision to do that, right? His anguish that he is bringing her into sorrow and into pain and into suffering and grief. Um, when he uh, endured all that he endured to get to her and found it all worth it, and he considers it all worth it to basically go back and do worse. That's what he's leaving Nargothron, not Nargothron, that's what he, well, yes, Nargothron, but that's not what he's leaving Doriath to do. When he agrees, when he swears the oath, um, you know, he makes his promise to Thingol, um, he, uh, uh, he's basically signing himself up for that said that that second half that doubling of anguish that he experienced to come there it's it's going to be worth it he will he will go through that right but to bring her into that he doesn't that's anguish to him he doesn't want that um so kimber we will see that become increasing i don't think that's what he's thinking in this moment when he's lying there on his face on the cold earth uh thinking that everything is that all is lost here um but uh um, but that certainly is going to come into the story very, uh, very clearly. Tom, of course, points out that you can't have, you can't be released from bondage uh, until you are first bound. Uh, this is true, but again, it doesn't even work. It still doesn't work that neatly, though, right? Because I cannot, you know, of all of the things that release from bondage could mean in the Baron and Luthien story, I can't imagine it's from the bond of their own love together, right? Um, of the binding chain with which fate has bound them together. Uh, if that's bondage, then surely they're not going to be released from the, from that bondage. What seems instead to be the case is a kind of a paradox here, right? That their binding together is release. Um, uh, that seems to be... <clears throat> that kind of paradox seems to me to be at the heart of the release from bondage stuff that we get in this poem. But of course, this isn't the only place we're going to get the release from bondage stuff. Um, Alright, let's keep going a little bit. Um, so I'm skipping the meeting with Dad. Um, it's hard, because it's a really good passage, but uh, but we're going to be so um, disciplined. Um we're going to skip that. I was really interested in Luthien's cloak. So now she's been, guess what? Bound in prison um, up in here alone, up in the, the beach. And here's her the cloak that she weaves from her hair. Of cloudy hair she wove a web like misty air of moonless night, and thereof made a robe as fluttering dark as shade beneath great trees, a magic dress that all was drenched with drowsiness, enchanted with a mightier spell than Melian's raiment in that dell, wherein of yore did Thingol roam beneath the dark and starry dome that hung above the dawning world. And now this robe she found, she round her furled, and veiled her garments shimmering white, her mantle blue with jewels bright like crystal stars, the lily's gold were wrapped and hid, and down there rolled dim dreams and faint oblivious sleep, falling about her to softly creep through all the air. Um, uh, first of all, 
First of all, you notice that she's still wearing Melalot's dress, <laughs> the, the blue dress with the golden lilies on it, uh, which were not so golden as her hair in the Melalot pose. So Luthien still is wearing Melalot's dress. But anyway, uh, apart from that, um, notice the connection with uh, uh, with Melian there, right? The explicit rec- recollection of the spell of sleep that Melian laid upon Thingol upon their meeting, that is the same spell that Luthien weaves into her cloak, with which she is going to escape from Thingol to join her. You know, So the, the way that, again, we get a reversal, but also a playing off of this, the way in which we see um, Thingol being uh, sort of having this kind of comeback, his own sort of hypocrisy kind of coming back against him. Uh, I think it's uh, I think it's really interesting. And yes, Kimber, it's even uh, um, it does seem even mightier than Melian's spell. I mean, it doesn't put people to spell for like centuries or anything, but um, uh, but it's certainly more general uh, than Melian's spell. We'll come back to Luthien's cloak. I'm I'm very interested in. Um, the process by which Luthien enchants both her hair and her cloak. Um, it's a fascinating scene in the uh, uh, in the tale of Tenuvio in the Book of Lost Tales, um, and the the uh, as Christopher points out, the Lathian version does follow that very closely. Um, so I, I, I we'll, we'll come back to that a little bit more um, next time, but um, but I but I do think it's 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 really fascinating. One more. Uh, sort of random passage. This from Canto Six. See, look how fast we're going now. Um, I love the depiction of Kurafin's Nargothrond. That is, this is the end of the speech, so Kelligorm has given his speech, um, you know, wherein he reiterates the oath of the sons of Fëanor, um, and then Kurafin does his bit. Look at how uh, uh, Nargothron, Nargothrondish Nargothrondian, um, uh, you know, there's no more Rodolf, uh, Rodolphin. Um, there's no, isn't an adjectival form for Nargothrond anymore. Anyway, um, uh, look at look at where this goes. This Kurafin, when his brother ceased, did then begin more to impress upon their minds, and such a spell he on them binds, that never again till Turin's day would Gnome of Narog in array of open battle go to war. With secrecy, ambush, spies, and lore of wizardry, with silent leaguer of wild things wary, watchful, eager, of phantom hunters, venomed darts, and unseen stealthy creeping arts, with padded hatred that its prey with velvet feet, with feet of velvet all the day, followed remorseless out of sight, and slew it unawares at night. Thus they defended Nargothrond, and forgot their kin in solemn bond, for dread of Morgoth that the art of Kurufin set within their heart. Um, Nargothronian, I like that, Sarah. Um, that sounds bad, doesn't it? Right? It's not just that they become really fearful and more cautious than ever about revealing themselves. The uh, Silmarillion doesn't go into such detail as this. This sounds awful, like an active corruption of their society. Sarah, I agree. Why are they doing wizardry but no sigildry? Um, it's, 
seriously, what were they thinking? Um, but yeah, Kimber, they become secretive predators. Absolutely. Um, that, uh, you know, I love that image with padded hatred, that its prey with feet of velvet all the day followed remorseless out of sight and slew it unawares at night. Um, you know, it's not just like, we're not going to show ourselves and we're going to fight from hiding instead. We're going to pursue you silently with hatred and then kill you in your sleep. Um, it's not quite evil, but it's close to it. It's really creepy. Well, it's literally creepy. The stealthy creeping arts, right? Um, uh, but it's... Um, yeah, Mary Rose. Bad ninjas. Very very, very ninja-like society they become, right? Um, it's... Um, it's... It's kind of awful. Notice the effect of that. Who gains by that? What's the net result of making Nargothrond under the influence of Kurafin sound so awful as this? Felagund, of course, by contrast. Who else by contrast? Yes, Kate... Turin! Turin! Right? Turin, not till Turin's day did this policy change. So when Turin came, so Turin's change of policy isn't a complete disaster. Right? I mean, okay, it doesn't end well. But, um, but you know, I, I, I wonder. Um, again, in the later versions, Turin's decision, Turin's influence in Nargothrond is bad, right? I mean, Turin, uh, um, you know, when at the end of the Nargothrond incident, uh, you know, uh, in Turin's life, um, Glaurung accuses him of of uh, being, uh, uh, you know, a curse. Well, no, that's, I'm thinking of the lines that said at the end of Glaurung's uh, vo- uh, life. But anyway, when Glaurung calls him, you know, uh, a, 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 a curse to uh, his kin and to, to everyone who takes him in, um, you can see, like, it's kind of fair, right? Yeah, he kind of did bring disaster everywhere he went, and through his own actions, through his own choices. It's not just that misfortune followed wherever he went, but all of the stuff that he does, even when he's trying to do good things, ends disastrously, and in large part because of his own choices. That's the later Turin, right? But remember, the Turin that we were seeing in the Lay of the Children of Hurin wasn't like that. At least not nearly so strongly. And in particular, remember, we broke off that poem in Nargothrond. Um, And one of the things that we were sort of immediately curious about is what would have happened there? What would Turin's later um, uh, time in Nargothrond have looked like? in the poem with that Turin that we were getting there. Um, Were we going to get the arrogant, overweening Turin who uh, openly defies Olmo and gets into, you know, gets into a fight with with Olmo's messengers when they come to warn him, right? Is that what we would have gotten from Turin? Conceivably, but that doesn't sound like the Turin we were seeing in the, in the lay of the children of Turin. Um, and so here, with the particularly creepy and evil-sounding, at least corrupt and corrupted um, uh, outlook and attitude and actions of the people of Nargothrond, Turin coming in and uh, um, convincing the gnomes of Narog in a ray of open battle to go uh, to go to war, kind of 
sounds like it might be actually a positive uh, a positive change. Um, you know, again, I don't know, but it's uh, but uh, it's one of the things. But I, I was really struck by how um, how bad this sounded. Kurafin is an extremely sketchy character uh, in this poem. I think even more so than in the published Silmarillion. Um, yeah. Okay. I'm gonna. I should let you go now. Um, next time, I promise. We'll. St- we didn't quite get to Thu, the necromancer. I promise we will do both Thu and Huan next time, um, and maybe with great good fortune we will get so we will get as far as uh, as uh, Morgoth uh, and the Silmaril. We'll. Um, we'll see. We'll see. Um, anyway, so yeah, no, uh, well, no, Arthur, the Thu part was in the reading for tonight, but we didn't quite get to... We got th- um, we're up to Canto 7. At least that's where I'm going to start next time. Not that we discussed 4, 5, and 6 uh, at all thoroughly, but um, but I'm going to jump up to Canto 7 and focus on the Thu stuff uh, for next time. Um, but, uh, yeah, yeah. Um, anyway, okay. Thanks, everybody. Uh, I look forward to getting to Thu and Huan and maybe even to Morgoth next time. Um, We'll see. Uh, Thanks very much. And uh, don't forget about uh, the fall classes, film film on Friday, and the the mid-mood event, the Mid-Atlantic Mythgard Symposium, Speculative Fiction Symposium. Uh, Make sure to look that up. Thanks, everybody. Good night now.